You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 394 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Before we go over to the news with Emily Hart in the second segment, and then over to a conversation with author Jordan Salama about his book uh, about the Magdalena River, four weeks down the Magdalena River. Uh, of course, it's entitled Every Day the River Changes. And uh, we have a great conversation about that for you guys. Buy his book. It's available online, officially out in November. But of course, you can pre-order on all the uh, relevant pages. Uh, we are thinking we have got six episodes remaining until episode 400. We need your help to think about an able and an appropriate person or people to have on episode 400. What a landmark episode for the Columbia Calling podcast. So please write in, tweet us, Facebook us, do everything. We need someone who really will represent the importance of episode 400 of the Columbia Calling podcast. And finally, make the birthday boy happy, please. This week, it's my birthday. And yes, it's quite a landmark number as well. Not 400, I'll have you know. But uh, you can sign up for just $2 a month on our Patreon page and ensure the financial and economic viability of the Columbia Calling podcast. So that's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And for as little as $2 a month, you'll get the weekly newscast reported, collated, digested by journalist Emily Hart in Medellin. And for a little bit more, you get all sorts of merchandise and goodies. So if you support the Columbia Calling podcast, please help us out there. But this is episode 394. Over to Emily Hart and then on to Jordan Salama. Thank you again and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of September 20th, 2021. Faced with a perceived security crisis in Bogota, Mayor Claudia Lopez invited military police into the city. Soldiers are now on patrol in the capital, with plans to carry out joint operations with Metropolitan Police in critical areas. There are also now plans for similar measures in the cities of Cali, Barranquilla and Cucuta, and in the municipality of Soacha. While some media claim there is an acute security crisis in Capital City, many argue that the statistics are inconclusive or even show drops in certain types of crime. Numerous critics and opposition politicians reject the militarization of Colombia's streets, on the grounds that military police are not trained for the job and that human rights violations are more likely. Meanwhile, justice for state violence during this year's national protests is only just beginning to take shape. The prosecutor's office will call to trial Major Jorge Mario Molano, who will be charged with the murder of Santiago Murillo. Molano, a uniformed officer, was already suspended. 
Santiago's death occurred on the 2nd of May in the midst of the national protests. According to the indictment, expert evidence indicates that Major Molano shot Santiago with no justification, ignoring all protocols for the use of weapons. The protest this year left 77 deaths attributed to police abuses. This is the very first indictment. The national protests were sparked by a tax reform bill seen as detrimental to the most vulnerable in Colombia. A new version of that bill has now been sanctioned by President Ivan Duque, with 5% more income tax for companies and 3% more for banks, designed to cover financial gaps and poverty exacerbated by the pandemic. There are, however, complaints that the process for passing the new bill was an imposition by the government, rushed through without meeting democratic standards. Meanwhile, at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, hearings begin this week between Colombia and Nicaragua. Nicaragua alleges a violation of its rights due to the Colombian Navy's operations in the Caribbean Sea around the archipelago of San Andres and Providencia. Colombia says that operations in those waters were carried out to protect inhabitants of the archipelago, as well as to comply with duties in the fight against drug trafficking and to protect natural reserves. This case follows another in which Nicaragua had claimed sovereignty over the archipelago and had been denied, though in that case the court drew a new delimitation between the two countries that took maritime area away from Colombia. After this hearing, the International Court will take between six months and a year to issue a ruling. It has been revealed that between January and July 2021, the Colombian Institute for Family Welfare opened more than 20,000 protection processes for children and adolescents. It's an average of 97 cases per day. Of these, half correspond to cases of sexual violence, around a third to omission or negligence, 9% to physical violence and 5% to psychological violence. Nearly 70% of the victims are girls. The government has announced a new campaign called Time to Change to tackle the issue, creating a new investigation body using big data and artificial intelligence and publishing images of the most wanted with rewards for information. However, 72% of cases of violence against children and adolescents occur in the home. After Duca's visit to Spain, marked by controversy over the government's interference in the list of national writers invited to the Spanish Book Fair, the president has now arrived in the United States. He will speak at the UN General Assembly to discuss his leadership on environmental issues and climate change. The president is also hoping to meet with US President Joe Biden, but in the meantime met with billionaire Amazon founder Jeffrey Bezos to discuss environmental issues. Last week, Colombia was named the most dangerous country in the world for environmental defenders in a report released by NGO Global Witness. And the number of deaths and ICU patients resemble pre-pandemic figures, according to the Ministry of Health, who report that the number of deaths from COVID-19 currently resembles that of other illnesses like flu. New daily cases are now at around 1,500 per day, and nearly 50% of the population has had one dose of vaccination. More than 30% are now fully vaccinated. However, with the increasing prevalence of the Delta variant in Colombia, a fourth COVID-19 infection peak is projected for October. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 394 of the Columbia Calling podcast as we're doing a lot of researching and soul searching and thinking about what 
we could do for episode 400, a big number coming up. But before we reflect on that, let's just say hello to this week's very special guest, Jordan Salama, who's in New York. This is, uh, he's an author, he's a writer, and well, frankly, he's written a great book, a very very readable book called the every day the river changes and it's well his journey along the magdalena river in colombia welcome jordan welcome and congratulations thank you richard it's a pleasure to be on colombia calling i'm very excited <laughs> well you are uh, well of course um but no thank listen it's not anyone who can write a book it's not anyone who uh you know is doing their their thesis at, at princeton and then and then the the, the thesis morphs into a book is this how it happened that's exactly how it happened. I was given the opportunity to travel for my thesis to do this research, and then one thing led to another, and uh, two years, no, three years after the fact, it's, uh, it's become a book. It's, it's incredible. I mean, had you, had you thought that this, uh, that I, you know, I quite, quite want to be a writer, I quite like to get into, the, I don't know, the travel genre, but it's not that travel genre, but you sort of, had it ever crossed your mind? You know, yes and no. It's it's kind of like a mix between travel writing and journalistic, environmental, novelistic <laughs> travel writing. And it's hard to describe. Um, when I entered school, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what kind of a writer I, I wanted to be. Um, and, you know, kind of taking courses with different professors who who did, you know, write for different publications in different mm. um in different styles, I, I sort of realized that this this journey idea was was what really um, grabbed me. Cool. But when I wrote the thesis, I didn't I didn't think in, in any way that it would become a book. Mm. I actually traveled the Magdalena thinking it was going to be a collection of stories that maybe one or two of them could get placed in newspapers or mm. a magazine or something like that, so I could kind of start a career as a as a freelance writer. Oh, but then I you know did not imagine that this would happen well, it's amazing I, and all power to you how of course it's the story and the way you've told it is the success and that's why i mean it's not it's not a jumbled uh collection of stories and it's not of course it's incredibly coherent and as i said before it reads so very well and it's in well of course it's interesting to me as you say i mean for me it's obviously my, my direct interest uh but I mean, what let's start from the thing your thesis was to talk about the peace accords i mean what were you doing as your thesis that led you to the magdalena river no, so I knew I wanted to write a kind of creative nonfiction journalistic thesis. That was definitely kind of mm -hmm. in, in the cards. Um, and I had done a project the year before, a kind of family history project where I retraced a trade route of my great-grandfather, who was a Syrian Jewish Argentinian <laughs> traveling salesman in the Andes. <laughs> Um, so from there, I realized that there was there were these kinds of journeys that could connect me with kind of disparate people and places along a single route, and I wanted to to recreate that, but on kind of a more globally important subject. Mm -hmm. It was definitely not my plan to write about the peace accords in you know in kind of any specific way, but I had been in Colombia about four years earlier um, doing some work with oh, the right. Wildlife Conservation Society and, and kind of, you know, documenting rural conservation projects in different parts of Colombia. And I was fascinated by the country. And when it came time for me to think of an idea for my thesis, I went back into these all these like notebooks that I scribbled in when I was there. And I realized that all these people were telling me I had to go back to the Magdalena. How had I not gone that first time? Um, and so I thought, you know what, a river is a great connecting thread. 
why don't I just follow a river to try to understand a country in, um, you know, that's changing a well, lot. Uh, and of course, the river is key to the whole country and the development, let's say, and even prior to the arrival of the Spanish. And, uh, and of course, you had a, you're one of your persistent professors was Rob Carl, who, of course, is one of the great, he's written one of the great recent books on Colombia, Forgotten Peace. So, of course, I'm sure he was behind and, and supporting you in this uh, venture. Yeah, we talked about it a lot. We swapped stories about kite flying because we were <laughs> we always used to, you know, I came a lot in August and he he loves that month because of the kites. So, yeah, no, Rob Rob is great and his book is 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 awesome. It is awesome and we had him on the show some many years ago now. And and go hang on, the little known thing is I won a scholarship to attend a high school in Princeton a long time ago, 1996. So for Americans, that was the Atlanta Olympics. <laughs> Uh, is the Hoagie Haven still there in Princeton? The Hoagie Haven is still there with lines out the door. I haven't been since the pandemic started, but it's definitely, okay. you know, I'm you glad. want a heart attack between two slices of bread, go to Hoagie Haven. Oh, it was the best. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I'm glad to hear that some things never change because uh, that was where my my companions took me for my, let's say, it was my sort of welcome meal to uh, Princeton Day School <laughs> back in wow. the day. That ages me a little bit. Let's move on before I, before I get uh, too nostalgic about uh, different times. Uh, so this is, I mean, obviously, this book is, when was the year, I, I mean, I read it yesterday, but when was the year that you were actually doing all of this research and the traveling? Was it 2016, 17? It was later, wasn't it? It was 2018. Okay. So, so actually, a little, a little known thing about, about this book is that um, the journey, the four weeks, actually occurred in two parts. So it was an interesting challenge to try to stitch together those two separate journeys into, mm -hmm. into one narrative that makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, so I went May 2018 and August 2018. And actually, a lot happened between May and August of 2018 um, that, was, that was interesting. So... Tell us about yeah. what happened to give us that give us that background because a lot of my re, uh, listeners well, are overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so one one I think the the most kind of um, widespread change that I noticed was the Venezuelan migration boom. Um, that was a summer when I think it went up by hundreds of thousands of people in in the span of like two or three months. So much so that when I was traveling in in May, I didn't notice it as much as when I traveled in August and met so many venezuelans living in colombia and really understood the complex situations those people are are facing and that kind of forms a large part of of one of the chapters in my book in which i spend several days in a town called estacion cocorna one of these kind of forgotten river towns in the middle of of the grasslands um that you know is now filled with venezuelan migrants who are making a big mark upon that town's existence mm -hmm. and so i wanted that to be a major major piece in the book i wanted you know, I think that that so much of what travel writing can be is bringing in these kinds of perspectives about what goes on in the sociopolitical context of a place. And so that's kind of that was what we wanted to do with that. It's it's fascinating. And and what I, you know, I, I listeners to the show will know I've been struggling for more than 10 years, <laughs> putting stuff down on paper. But I want to ask is, is that Colombia changes so rapidly. And, you know, you, you're writing about your time with the Wildlife Conservation Society, so WCS, and then you're writing about the Venezuelans. And I, I, you know, I was reading it yesterday, and I was sitting there reading it, and I'm going, 
God, you know, in the time that he must have written that first draft and the time that this has come out, he must have had to have changed so much in terms of, you know, the socio-political and the political uh, landscape in Colombia. How did you grapple with this? Because I imagine your editor's going, Jordan, it's changed again. Uh, or you're going, you're, you're waking up and you're seeing yet another headline. And you're like, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> yes. And I mean, far and away, that's the biggest challenge. It's called Every Day the River Changes for a reason. And every day it felt like the book was changing. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, it is very much, you know, this, it, it doesn't try to be more than one young person's encounter with a country and a river and its people, right? Um, so at the very base level, that encounter was going to form, like that wasn't necessarily going to change because that that trip and those journeys and those encounters were, were always going to remain. But, you know, obviously, the people who I met, the places where I was, lots changed. The biggest and kind of most jarring examples terrible was that well so i spent a lot of time with social leaders mm. throughout the country right um and a year after i met the anthropologist archaeologist luis manuel salamanca in san agustin this kind of nationally renowned um scientist and historian and, and anthropologist who worked on the unesco world heritage site up in the mountains there he was murdered a year after like almost a year to the day after i met him and you realize when something like that happens and you're sitting in a place like Princeton working on a project, you know, something like that happens and makes you realize who are the important people in, in the world. Mm. Um, and that had to go in the book, right? That wasn't in the thesis. That wasn't even in the first draft. And of course, then it just radically changed that entire chapter became, had to be about Luis Manuel Salamanca and the plight of social leaders in Colombia because there was simply no other way. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, things have changed for the worse and things have also changed for the better. I made lifelong friends along that river and I've heard of people getting degrees and families, you know, making a better life for themselves elsewhere, even if it meant moving from where I first met them. Um, lots changed. Too much to ever get into deeply, but yeah, yeah. something definitely more jarring than, than the others. How, I mean, you became friends with Luis Salamanca. You spent a significant time, amount of time with him. I mean, how were you affected? And, and because the... I would say the that chapter it's a you know it's it's pretty much the opening the first major chapter and I've got a quote here that I wrote down because it really it uh, I found it incredibly insightful and it, it's, he says what I tell my students now about the peace process is that it's like buying an abandoned farm you have to put a lot of work into it and the wait and then wait for a while hoping for the results to show and i mean that is it's so very insightful uh, and and of course i wrote it down because it's something it meant something to me you became friends with him and then a year later you hear and it was national news he's he's you know he's a he's a, a person of of note in colombia and must have affected you quite profoundly absolutely that shows you, first of all, so he was a man of few words when I, you know, I spent a lot of time with him, but he, you know, what he chose to say was very guarded and specific. The fact that he said such, su such a thing as, as profound as that showed me that he felt that the peace process, first of all, was a long, a long game that even maybe he thought he would not live to see the end of, which was very eerie, especially after the fact, given what happened. But when it happened, 
it was really, I mean, it was just terribly sad. I, of course, not only was friends with him, but friends with his friends. And more than anything else, to see how people who've known him for their entire lives were affected by something like this. And also the kind of effect that it has on the morale of people who do similar work. Mm. Um, it's just, it was terrible. It was the day that I was supposed to defend my thesis or the day before I was supposed to defend my thesis in front of a panel of professors. And of course, then it, that entire defense ended up being about, you know, uh, or a lot of it ended up being about Luis Manuel Salamanca. Yeah, it's just, how can, how can you, living in a place like, like New York, where we're so lucky, right? Where these things just don't happen on a daily basis as it does in Colombia. How can you ever fully understand what it's like? And I feel like that happening was the only, the closest I've ever gotten to, f- to fully realizing just the, the depth of despair of something so terrible like that happening. I just don't have words. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It was just awful. It's, it's too much, isn't it? And it's a day, it's, as you say, it's a daily occurrence here. Uh, and I, I fear that we've become jaded to it, uh, especially being here and just people ending up being footnotes not not news anymore footnotes and so there therein lays the importance of something you write it's it's there it's 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 in in print and it's overseas and it's in english and hopefully hopefully again my naivety will come through hopefully there's something but I suspect, I suspect, and you did put it in the book, but, you know, again, the difference between the book and the actuality, you did put it in the book that, that there's, you know, there's been no one, I mean, total impunity. Uh, are we still in that situation? From what I understand, um, yeah. yeah. And that seems to be the case with almost all of these social leaders who are, who are killed, is that they promise an investigation and then nothing ever comes through. Right. That's part of the problem. It's. I was doing. I've done a piece. It should hopefully come out in the the Globe and Mail in Canada shortly. And it's about the the report from Global Witness this this last week about Colombia being the worst place in the world, the most deadly place in the world for environmental defenders. Sixty five people in 2020, 64 people in, t- in 2019, and I managed to get in touch with some people in near to Cali and the families of of a gentleman who was killed a few years ago. And it's just nothing. I mean, it's just nothing. It, uh, you know, they and they find the people who pulled the trigger, but that's not that's you know that's not a that doesn't solve anything at the end. You know, okay, you're taking one gun off the street, but how many are there, uh, and who's giving the order? And that tends to be the the main issue here, I think. But let's 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 move on. I mean, it's very poignant because you do put that, and and you can kind of I I kind of knew obviously where it was going, knowing the name. Luis Salamanca, but that's of course me being here and immersed in the situation daily. Uh, I kind of knew where it's going, but I think for for the the lay person or the person with just the the general interest in Colombia reading it, it'll hit quite hard that because it is a it is a quite a poignant moment, uh, and you don't. Uh, I would and I'd like to commend you highly on this. It doesn't become verbose. It's it's very clear. It's, it's these are clear sentences, and you don't want it. You don't want the the hundred word sentence to explain these things. And too many, uh, as we'd say in Spanish, floripondio, floripondio like flowery <laughs> uh, uh, descriptions and so on. We're telling a somber piece of news about a friend of yours that's the truth but let's uh, i mean you move on and you'll go down the river you're talking about you know this is the area of san agustin and you keep going down onda and so on but you deliberately and i think you pick 
different towns. You're not picking like this sort of, you know, the obvious places to stop. Now, we need to move over this because it's one of my personal bugbears. It's the hippos <laughs> around Puerto yes. Triunfo and Puerto Berrio and all this area. Okay, for those of us who are journalists in Colombia, it's our least favorite story because it's come out a thousand times. And Radio Ambulante, the po excellent podcast, their podcast this week is about it as well. And it's just like, again, the blessed hippos. But give us a little bit of a background. I mean, we know they were from Pablo Escobar's farm. Some escaped. Uh, the, this area of the Magdalena, Puerto Berrio, Barranca Bermeja, all of these areas. It's the perfect African climate. And so they flourished. How I remember you saw them. Yes. I mean, that's the difference between you and about a thousand of the journalists who've written the story. Tell us a little bit about that part of the adventure. Well, I think that that's exactly what I wanted to do to make it different from all of the stories that have come out. They're almost like cartoonish clickbait articles about, oh, look, look at these drug hippos that are colonizing Colombia. And you're like, you know, this is not giving any insight into what's actually a very complex scientific dilemma mm. that's impacting a lot of people who live there um, and fishermen and people who, who you know, work in the environmental sectors of, of those towns and those regions. And so I knew that if, well, first of all, I knew that it was a big story about the river and to, t to tell the story about the river today, it's hard to ignore, but I thought, how could I do this in a way that would be uh, sensitive and actually tell a story that, that is productive and helpful and not just adding to the chorus of people who are gloating about hippopotamuses because they think that it's, it's funny. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I, I made a big effort to get in touch with, um, people who are working on you know, solutions to this, to this problem. It doesn't look like there are many feasible solutions. It's a very difficult problem to solve. But as a result, I was able to go out with this kind of cohort of biologists and community leaders um, and environmentalists from, from around Estacion Cojorna, again, this small town near Puerto Triunfo that I went, that I went to. And we saw the hippos. Not only that, though, we spoke with subsistence fishermen and farmers who had, I mean, just two days earlier, one guy had been chased off of his land by a hippopotamus. So not even in the water. Mm. Like it was like a cow trying to, to run him down. So, um, you know, there's, there's real problems. And then since I went uh, in the three years that have, you know, these hippos have, <laughs> have reproduced just in a massive scale. So speaking with conservationists, again, from afar, we're trying to figure out has one been sighted near Magangay? If so, that's a disaster. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and and then there's others who are saying they fill some kind of ancient ecological niche. Uh, uh, you know, have you heard about this? No, go for it. Tell me oh, about yeah. this. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the details. You know, <laughs> the details are are uh, questioned, but there are there is a cohort of people who believe that that these hippos are replacing large uh, aquatic mammals that were extinct like thousands of years ago and so actually you know there could be a, a, a reason why maybe it's this it's fine we don't need to do anything about it um the overwhelming majority don't believe that the overwhelming yeah. majority believe that, that that something must be done but anyway as you can see very very complex and so many of the articles that come out about it get rid of that complexity oh, i hope that yeah yeah as you say it's the humor of of this yeah. uh it, 
I, I guess you'd say it's, it's the sort of incongruous nature of hippos in South America. That you know, but I don't. I mean, it's it. It is complex. I don't. I don't buy that about the uh, uh, you know prehistoric, let's say, animals. And uh, um, what you don't come to a conclusion, which is very careful and clever. Do you have a conclusion on on this? I don't. I don't think that. I can come to a conclusion because I, I, I'm not a biologist. I don't know. <laughs> it's such a complicated question. There's no, it's not a black and white situation. Uh, and as no, you say, unfortunately, I don't. Yeah. So very, very expensive to, to do anything. And I, I, yeah. I well, mean, Richard, I mean, the other, yeah. the other thing that's concerning, right. And, and I know that you, you believe this is that it's a wildlife problem in Colombia. There are so many wildlife problems in Colombia. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the second, what, second most biodiverse country in the world, like with mm. all of these landscapes and species that need protecting. Yeah. And it's just sad that so much has to or is going to going towards these hippopotamuses. So much mm. money, so much time, so much thought. When that could be put, we would hope, to fighting the climate crisis or, or you know, yeah. things like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it is part of it. And so that needs to be solved. It's, it's tough. I, I just want to, I, and I remember, of course, it, it rang uh, significantly with me that the issue of perhaps being spotted by Magangay. I mean, that's the... That's where the Cauca and the Magdalene are, you meet. It's the second most uh, important financial economic center in Bolivar. I mean, it's a serious port for the whole Mohana and uh, that area of the river. If the hippos have got this far, then then something drastic is going to be done and has to be done. I mean, Magangue is a stone throw from Mompos, and then we could have hippos wandering down the Calle del Medio. I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> again, but that brings us in and that's trivializing the point and i didn't mean to do that but there is a bigger issue here and i think part of the interest in the story about the hippos is this just this this and i don't want to say it in a positive way but it's this aura around pablo escobar and this is this comes up a lot and unfortunately we can't write about colombia without having mentioned him there were people equally as bad there are people equally as bad and as nefarious and cruel sanguine and all the rest but he occupies this place in a collective imagination beyond colombia and a friend of mine a colombian who studies in the uk has been there for a long time she said you know when i was living in colombia we would just yawn with boredom and it's like oh god again they're doing another film about Col uh, escobar again they're doing another book about escobar but it took her I don't know, a decade in the UK to suddenly see it from another vantage point and said, he is a fascinating character. He is, I mean, not taking away from, again, the immense cruelty and bloodletting and so on, but from somewhere. And so we, we struggle, and especially I struggle being here, but it has to come in. And I guess if you if you, I don't know, how do you feel on that? I mean, do you, are you somewhat resentful that you had to talk about Escobar? Because we kind of want to talk about Colombia and we want to help Colombia, but at the same time, it's, it's always there, isn't it? Yeah, I, I made a, a very, and I say this in the book, I mean, I made an effort to not as much as possible because yeah. I feel like so much of what is Colombia in the media in the United States is dominated by, by Escobar. Maybe that's, I mean, solely because of shows like Narcos on Netflix, and that's just what people know. Yeah. But 
Um, no, I wanted, I, I wanted to as much as possible show what everyday life is today, mm-hmm. like along this river and in this country. And so, yeah, Escobar came in kind of more because of the hippos mm-hmm. um, and because he is a, he's the reason why they're there. Yeah. But if it weren't for them, I actually may not have mentioned him. I don't know. I, I don't want it to sound like I was aiming for the book to be incomplete, but I, I wanted to get past that in order to talk about today. It's tough, isn't it? It's really tough. And your, your editor probably would have said, we got to get some Pablo in there. We got <laughs> so it's a, But anyhow, you did it well. And it, I think it's the hippos were the key, of course. And then, yeah, well. Um, yeah. You spent time in Barranca Bermeja. And of course, you talk about the heat. Uh, Barranca Bermeja is where my wife is from. That's where she was really? born and grew up. And my, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, I've spent a fair amount of time there. It's 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 not without its charm (laughs) the poor area i find fascinating the people are wonderful because they come from all over colombia working for the big eco patrol uh but i would say at the end at the end you know architecturally and and scenically it's kind of unlovely (laughs) that's about the nicest i can say about it please baramejos don't kill me um uh, my my colombian team my the, the the football team i feel some affection for is uh, uh alianza petrolera so there we go dreadful team um but i think it's really interesting you talked about the pipaton i i um the hotel pipaton i've stayed in the hotel uh, oh, really? i took a group that i was i took a group i've taken groups uh, of of english tourists american tourists from barranca bermeja up to monpos on the river and we stay until it was closed and i found it very interesting that that the barranca bermeja uh chapter let's say or segment of the book really deals with the pipeton and this fading glory of what is a wonderful hotel but i think we might have been the last group that stayed in there because it was in such poor state and and but you became friends with like the manager i think yeah i mean well this is right how things happen when when you're going on a trip like this Things happen that, that you don't expect. I actually didn't even think that I was going to be spending much time in Barranca Bermeja at all. I actually thought it was just going to be a transition point <laughs> to get on a boat to, to keep going. But when I got there, a taxi driver, uh, he was like, where are you staying? Because I had to get to where I was staying. And I had stayed, I, you know, this was rare because for the vast majority of the time that I was along this river, I stayed with families yeah. in, in their homes. Um, but I couldn't find somebody in Barranca Bermeja. So I stayed in some hotel. It was like a Radisson or some some brand name hotel. Yeah. He was like, he says to me, what a shame. <laughs> if you really cared about the Magdalena and were interested in learning about it, you should stay in the Hotel Pipaton. It's closing <laughs> tomorrow. And I was like, wow, you know, here's a chance. So the first thing in the morning, I went to the Hotel Pipaton. And who did I find was this man, Oscar Castilla, who was this, you know, very kind guy who, unfortunately for him, had nothing better to do because his hotel was closing like that <laughs> night. To then to talk to me. And when we started speaking in Spanish, obviously, as all of these uh, interactions were in Spanish, he uh, asked me where I was from. And I said, New York. He said, oh, in English. I'm from Queens. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And, and so then I was like, hey, you know, you waited so long to tell me that you're from Queens. So at like five years old, he moved to the U.S. with his family. All of his family still lives in Queens. And he moved back because of this various business ventures that then ended up leading him to become the last 
manager of this fading hotel. And so it just happened to be that I stumbled on the, you know, grandest hotel on along the Magdalena. Maybe now, you know, that position has been occupied by La Casa Marija, ah. but, but <laughs> the, the Pipaton, you know, kind of held that for, for a while. And then it was just gone the day that I would be leaving. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wow, this is just has to be in the story. So I spent some extra time there with him and and then moved on. It's that. a great place. And if if I could see some way of finding international investment for it, it would, again, it would just knock the, the uh, competition out of the water there. And, and, and that, that, that entry, the sort of, you know, opulent entry in the, the roundabout there with the view over the Magdalena, Magdalena river and the, let's say the, um, I guess I fuel the chimneys burning off the excess gas. I mean, is, there is something really quite scenic about it. Although the whole place, the whole of Barranca Bermeja smells like a burning rubber because of it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what was weird about the Pipaton was that, uh, you know, it was again, closing literally the next day and it felt as though it would be open forever yeah. because I, you know, there were, elderly women having aerobics <laughs> classes in the pool the restaurant was literally packed with people like eating <laughs> it was like a last supper of some kind must have been but no it just felt like an everyday occurrence in the pipaton yeah. and you wouldn't have known had you not asked that the next day it would be gone for good yeah and then you wandered down and it's about 100 meters away as the core magdalena office and and it made me laugh and the core magdalena is the the sort of like i don't know public entity that manages the river let's say and you know I, i've been in i'm now i'm now work quite well with them but it's taken 10 years um <laughs> i i believe that <laughs> uh, it, it's just but they're they are actually pulling their socks up a bit because they have to dredge parts of the river because in 2023 we're getting luxury boats coming down yeah. so um we'll see they all come up to Mompos now all the time and and anyway i know them reasonably well but this whole this whole thing of of you waiting an hour and everyone being too busy and no one giving you any out yeah i've been there <laughs> i've been in that very office i think i know right. the receptionist <laughs> yeah, so, it's just like, you know you sort of read it it's like oh god i mean this is so very familiar and but i like i mean you move up and you don't just have much much to say about El Banco Magdalena and I'm kind of happy about that because there's not a great deal to say about El Banco Magdalena and you move on to uh, Montpós and of course you stay with my suegros yes my in-laws yes (laughs) in my house yes (laughs) and it's funny how that happened because you know one has to plan a little bit at least when you're arriving in a place where where you will stay. And in Montpos, I did not have a family to stay with. So I was like, okay, I'll make the sacrifice. I'll stay in a hotel. And in my little guidebook, of course, your hotel was like the first one that they were like, you should stay here. So I wandered in and yeah, no, of course. And it was beautiful. I was like, wow, it'd be great to, <laughs> to, to have this as a base. Um, the very nice man who was working there, and I don't remember his name now, he was like, unfortunately, we're all booked. There's no room, but you know, you might have some luck with Coochie. <laughs> And I was like, who's that? And he said, here, come, come, I'll show you. And, uh, and he called her and she was like, oh yes, come, 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 come. And of course I showed up at her beautiful house. She treated me so wonderfully and, and, and kindly. And I felt right at home. And then so much. So I, I loved staying with them so much that, uh, I came back to Montpos <laughs> like a year and a half later to, to follow up with some research and to do another project. And I stayed with them again. It was great. 
I love it. Uh, Coochie, I mean, that, and that's her nickname. So it's my mother-in-law, Coochie. You know what she feels, you see, it, it, because she's been so, well, obviously she's uh, pivotal to the to everything because my mother-in-law is from Montbos and everything else. Nothing would have been possible without her and without the family. That's the truth uh, for, for me and my projects and my wife's projects. Um, but uh, she sees someone like you, like, you know, a young, young man, and she just goes, so young and so far from home and she wants to just embrace them all and that's what she says they've got no one here and that's and she's just she was mother because technically speaking she almost she raised all of her brothers and sisters because her mother was working and so yeah. she, she's her whole life has been one of sort of raising <laughs> children uh, yeah. and so therefore you would have fallen very much into the category of oh this poor boy <laughs> so she said that to me and i greatly appreciate it, as did my mother <laughs> so, you know she was like oh, I'm, i'll be your second mother in colombia and my mom because um, i was what 21 when i was going down the magdalena it was like i had not had that much experience myself, and it was really nice to to have her there and you know it's so funny because one thing leads to another and these these meetings turn into other things, right? So it just so happens that her house is right in front of a restaurant that was owned by a woman named Sandra Cure Yunes. Oh, yeah. Sandra, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Sandra, Sandra. <laughs> right. So, you know, my family's from the Middle East originally before they made it to Latin America and the US. And so is hers. They're Lebanese. <laughs> um, I, I met her and her, and then I ended up meeting her parents in Magangue. So I was able to, to explore Magangue for a while. Crazy place. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. And you know, so speaking with her, I met her daughter in Barranquilla, who's now a, a wonderful friend of mine. Um, and and it brought into the book this Middle Eastern history, a kind of hidden history, I think, for a lot of people in the U.S., at least, um, that maybe wouldn't have been as prominent had I not met people like her. And she showed me where to get kibbe on a corner <laughs> in Montpost. And I was thrilled. That's I was like, I, my Syrian family made it. Abajo. Abajo, they yeah. say. Abajo kibbe. Um we have it's a strong like most of the port uh, the port, magdalena port towns and you do bring that in and of course it brings in your very uh, fascinating family history the fascinating uh, what do you want to say, syrian jews uh going to argentina and so on and so forth then but i mean I and mean, we can talk about that but i uh, before we move on uh, there is uh, so many hasbun halili uh who else is there i don't remember there's tokure yeah, yeah i mean it's all the turcos. yeah all the turcos of course <laughs> um and of course you bring in one of my favorite people abundio samuel marmol the musician and i have to say we we stop we chat all the time i've attended some of his drumming i actually hired him and his son to teach me how to do drumming uh well it was actually to teach my son but he wasn't interested during the pandemic and the lockdown because they were earning no money so it was like you know what this is how we'll do it i i who have not one musical bone in my body will <laughs> take tambor lessons with you and this is what i'll pay you and of course that was it was something but um abundio played at my wedding he played it really? uh, yeah and, and i just love that you brought him in and uh, i will of course because i'm going up there in mid-october i will make sure i pass uh pass on the message and uh, please do yeah <laughs> please do and show show them that you have uh, i hope you're getting at least if you don't have it already the print copy of the book it, it's coming uh, uh the print copy is coming from your publisher and i've bought it as well because i in my new hotel i've got a library and i put all the books in there <laughs> 
<laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, thank you so much. That's yeah. that's great. Yeah, I mean, I I loved Don Abundio when I met him. I actually can't remember now how that meeting ended up transpiring <laughs> as everything blurs. It's so funny. But Mompos is such a I mean, what struck me and continues to strike me is that's one of the most amazing places I've ever been in my life because it is well, it's such a musical place. I felt like every time I walked out at dusk there was some kind of dance that just like happened upon a plaza or musicians that just kind of met together on a whim to to play mm-hmm. and i knew that i i had to in- include that somehow and the you know the best way to do it was to talk to the master himself and i went to the <laughs> house and i saw his, his drums he was working outside when i met him um yeah and it also does bring in this interesting bit of uh of the two the two sides of Montpos, which is which is a whole other <laughs> yeah, whole, I, this is something i'm grappling with myself <laughs> but this uh i love that and since we've had the restoration of those plazas and of course you saw them it has opened up public space to the local people and therefore we're getting dance practices every night and you say musical events and it really is very special Previous to that, when there was no like sort of nighttime illumination in the plazas, we didn't have it, and it was all very much private and very much reserved, and we didn't feel that magic. And it is a mag- it is something magical around dusk to hear the the mapale, the cumbia being played, or in the morning, you know, before it's too hot because it's soporifically hot, uh, the girls out practicing their dance moves and and so on. It's really special, but. We, I mean, we can wax lyrically about this, and I, I, people will say to me, oh, you just did this to promote your place. And so we're going to have to move on from that, okay. and we're coming to the last kind of 10 minutes and so on. It's like you've had an amazing success story. You know, your thesis turns into a book. It's out there. It, what, what day does it actually hit the shelves? November 16th. Okay, so we're not too, not too long, and I know that my listeners will put it down on you know, Amazon and the other, other you know, online uh, sales places. You put it down, Jordan Salama, the river. Every day the river changes. This success story has taken you, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've risen like the cream to the top. What's next? Uh, but where do you go from here at, at what, you're 25? Well, let's wait, for the book to <laughs> let's wait for the book to come out first. I feel very lucky, and I think that I, I didn't necessarily expect any of this to to happen. Like uh, the way that this book came about was just crazy. It was my thesis, and I was presenting it as my thesis to a panel of professors. And one guy, a journalist named Jim Dwyer for the New York Times, mm-hmm. he passed away also quite tragically about a year ago now. Um, but I will be forever grateful to this man because I had not met him before, and he came up to me to introduce himself. And he said, this should not be a collection of stories about a river. This should be a book about the river. And I have the agent who's going to get it published for you. And I was like, wow. (laughs) And of course, he put me in touch with my awesome agent now. His name's Andrew Blanner, and I'm grateful to him for everything. And then, you know, and then we ended up finding uh, Catapult and Mega. And it's just, you know, my editor, she's, she is the reason why this book feels like a unified narrative and why it's, it's, um, it, it aims to be such an empathetic and sensitive story mm. it's because of her and so you know many many people were involved in in, in this becoming well, what 
Uh, I don't know what's next. Is all I'm, I'm making excuses to not talk about what's next because I have no idea. I think it's about your 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 roots in Argentina. I think there's something Syria to to Argentina. How, I, I know that people are interested. How how does this happen? I mean, don't give away your next book, but how does this happen? How does the the my the, fa- how the, how have the, I become who I the, the migration all the way to Argentina? Yeah. Um, so my great-grandparents were born in Damascus and Aleppo, Jews in Syria, a community that was extremely working class and nobody really knows much about, or not much has been written about them. Lots of people know about them, but not much has been written about them. Um, and around the time of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Jews and Christians, basically non-Muslim minorities, were being conscripted for forced military service. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of legends around how Salim Salama, my great-grandfather, fled Syria for Argentina and why he ended up in Argentina in the first place. That's another subject of debate, (laughs) but he did. Um, Some say he, when they came to conscribe him to the army, he assaulted the the officer who called him an anti-Semitic slur and fled onto a barge that was leaving for for Argentina or for for France and then onto Argentina. Anyway, he arrives in Argentina where my grandfather is born. My grandfather is the second to last of eight children. He goes, you know, uh, he's one of he's the first to get a higher kind of education of any kind the rest ended up owning textile shops as most syrian jews in latin america do um but my grandfather went to medical school and he studied with che guevara in the same class of the Facultad de medicina in buenos aires and uh for years he trained as a as a socialist uh revolutionary in the mountains in argentina until he became disillusioned with the cause and left for um for new york where he thought, you know what, maybe I'll have opportunities here. And that's how we ended up here. So hang on. So he trained as a, a revolutionary with Che Guevara in the mountains of... Oh, Ar- oh, okay. not, not with Che Guevara. Okay. No, no, no. That, but, that part of the story is a link that... Okay. that uh, but yeah. I like the link. I mean, that's a pretty incredible link. That, okay, they studied together, so he must have seen the, you know, the, the, the ideals coming along. And, and then he, tur- he got disillusions and went to the seat of capitalism. <laughs> exactly but but how does uh, i mean what my my grandfather abuelo <laughs> lives here still he's 93 wow. he's gonna be 93 next month and he still practices as a doctor and what does he do here he for his entire almost his entire career in new york he has had his own office where he sees undocumented immigrants who can't find medical care in in english wow uh, no, sorry who can't find medical care in spanish because mm. they don't speak english so he has his own way he has always had his own way of being very community oriented in, in all that he does. So, you know, it's because of him and all the grandparents who laid the foundations for our lives in America that I'm able to do something crazy like this. I, so. I, I hope you're sitting with him with a tape recorder and, and getting all of his recollections and memories down, please. Yes. Because this Forward. is the next book, and I, I see that clearly there because it is so very fascinating. And of course, with the Middle East, Never being far from the headlines for all the wrong reasons, uh, and uh, you know, bringing in South America and then up to New York, it's 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 a it's a family epic, is what it is. <laughs> it's not just for your family; it's for everyone. Um, and and in the great, I would say, you know, the 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 custom of people like Michael Jacobs, Bruce Chatwin, and and others. Is you mention them both in in the book, and and well, why not? Why not uh, do this? Why not uh, while you're young and you can? Now, uh, we're on YouTube. We're recording this way. Grab the book behind you and show 
show us, show the, those, those few people that sign up to see it here, show what it looks like. Every day the river changes four weeks down the mountain. There you go, everyone. If you not, if you're only listening to this on a, on a, on a podcast, it's a very nice, it's got it, you know, scenery of the Magdalena river and stuff. And you will be able to spot it very quickly in bookstores. We still go to bookstores, everyone, uh, <laughs> and, uh, buy the book, support a young writer do it it's really it's an interesting book it's well written and I've, I've said it three times already it's it's very readable you don't get bogged down in the technicalities and the difficulties of the com- colombian complexities which of which there are too many um so thank you congratulations and i will i've read it um when the other book arrives, I'll, I'll write you a review somewhere. <laughs> so, but, uh, or, you, you know, and, and I'll write, I will do it. I always do it. And uh, thank you for your time, Jordan. And I wish you all the best with the launch. And, of course, it's going to be a success. The fact it's published, that's a success. Um, so, you know, congratulations. And I look forward to the next one. Don't rest on your laurels too long. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Definitely. And in, in, something's in the works brewing and there will be news soon, we hope. I will, uh, I will share your, your, your regards to, my, to Kikuchi, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, and of course to Don Abundio when I see him. <laughs> and also, if you do pass by the house of Simon Villanueva, I know also one of my friends who's no longer with us, mm-hmm. If you could say hi to his family for me, his wife and his kids, um, and show them that he is such a big part of this book. He is somebody who has taught, more than anybody else, I feel like has taught me the value of loving what you do every day, because uh, that's a, he's just a, the best that Monpos has has to offer. He's one of the, was, the family is one of the key filigree silver uh, families let's say designers and so on uh, a huge family a very important family thank you jordan it's been a real pleasure it's been a pleasure to meet you albeit <laughs> over over zoom and again as i say everyone the book is called every day the river changes by jordan salama I, I'm, I'm saying that right yeah, Sal- yeah salama. And, and please buy it it's fascinating and of course you know it's a it's a it's an insight into colombia so this has been episode 394 of the colombia calling podcast i've been richard mccall talking to author jordan salama thank you to all the new signups on patreon that's uh, patreon.com colombia calling at forward slash colombia calling for as little as two dollars a month you can help support the colombia calling podcast and indeed sign up for the newscast reported by journalist emily cast and that newscast arrives it's columbia news to your whatsapp or your telegram account and an audio file every monday so you get the digested collated and interpreted columbia news not so easy in english uh so therefore thank you to all of you who've signed up this last week and we'll be back next week with more stories or people with something columbia related thank you again and bye-bye.